In this episode, we interview Katya Fisher, who has been selected and rated by super lawyers as a rising star for several consecutive years. She's served as legal counsel to various companies, international and domestic. And we talk about how the crypto industry has changed in a good way with people finally growing up and working alongside the regulators. And that's why we've seen so many different institutions take on crypto and adopt it. Um, This is going to be a good year for 2019. We also talk about how Katya got into crypto law from IP and tax law and how she's been really killing it this year and really building a name for herself in the community and helping out our entrepreneurs and the ecosystem. We've also talked about how the crypto scene is booming from Miami and what made her move from New York City to Brickle, Miami. Uh, We also talk about how we're building a business and how it's all about the person as opposed to the transaction and how it's a small community and how we can give back. And finally, we wrap up with what advice we would tell our 15-year-old selves and our 25-year-old selves. Looking forward to it. This is the Future One Podcast. So how are you doing? I'm doing very, very well. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, you know what? I'm blurry for a second. Okay. Is it clear, like the uh, the picture and everything? You're fine. How am I? Okay. Yeah, you look great. You look like uh, you look like you have a pretty good camera. Is that just the your laptop's uh, you know, this camera? Is my Air, and I have to tell you something. I so I'm coming to you live from my uh, from my apartment, mm-hmm. and the problem is it's on the 47th floor. Okay. Internet here sucks, and normally when I have Skype meetings with clients and the like, and I'm working yeah. from home, I'm on my desktop, sure. and everything cuts out, and that's why tonight I decided I would go on my laptop in my dining room okay nice background <laughs> and it's working so yeah. I'm really happy. well glad it's working um thanks for taking time to chat with me um my background is pretty plain but you know i, I told you i bought like gear so this yeah. is an umbrella <laughs> so it's like professional like photography uh gear that i got on amazon um and that's what like gives me the lighting here so ah. Special effects. I'll, I can edit it out, you know, later. So no one knows. <laughs> cool. Sounds and uh, I found this in the fridge. So yeah, I love uh, that you're drinking a Mike's hard lemonade. While yeah. It's a uh, pretty, pretty hard drink to drink. Um, it's all I could find, but you know, maybe next time I'll make it like uh, mandatory for interviewers to, to drink with me. So yeah, wasn't there Drunk History? You know Drunk History on Comedy Central? I don't. I don't. I don't. No. So what is that? People just kind of talk about history over drinks? And they get really drunk. And just the drunker they get, the funnier the stories get. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's, that's always exciting. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you're more than welcome to join me for a glass of wine or you know, got something. I think I'm good. Okay. Yeah, you don't want to be like slurring when you, uh, when you try to answer all these questions, right? <laughs> I mean, it could be interesting. <laughs> um, cool. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I, I really, again, thank you so much for just taking a little time out. I thought, you know, your content was really interesting. You know, I've, I've been seeing like a bunch of posts in the Telegram channel of like, you go into a lot of these events. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I don't get a chance to go to all of them. 
Um, so maybe I can get some of that info here and we can share it with people. Sure. Um, and let me ask you this. Are you from Miami? No, I'm not. Okay. Um, I just got an apartment here back in June. Okay. And you're, so you're in Miami now, but you used to be from New York? So I am born and raised in New York. Okay. I was born in Manhattan. My father was a professor at Columbia University. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mother immigrated from Moscow, Russia. And because of that, I mean, I was born in Manhattan. We lived on Morningside Drive. By the yeah. He was one of the directors of the Harriman Institute, which is the, the Russian Studies Institute. Sure. And then we moved to Princeton, New Jersey. I lived in Princeton. Mm -hmm. so I had like a, I had, I had a really preppy 80s, you know, like tennis. And the yeah. And the shoulders and all of so that. So was it like a private school where you had to kind of like wear a uniform and, and. No, uh... no I was in public school and then we okay. moved to Washington, D.C. when I was 10 years old. Um, okay. Became one of the directors of the Holocaust Museum mm -hmm. in Washington. So we lived in D.C. and then I moved back to New York to go to college. And I lived in New York for many years after that. Yeah, I only ask because I did see some of your events in Miami. I'm originally from Florida, so I grew up in Florida. I'm hey. from Tampa, um, and my brother is getting married. So get this: so my brother is getting married in two weeks. So I'm going to Tampa. I'm going to Columbia tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. for my brother's bachelor party. Um, so, <laughs> but hey, this is how disciplined I am. You know, I made sure I do an interview before I head out, you know. The, yeah. Wow. I'm very impressed. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not from Florida. Okay. Uh, I moved to Florida under kind of a, honestly, it was a spur of the moment decision. Mm -hmm. so I have, I have a two and a half year old son. Yeah. I, you know, I went to college in New York. I went to law school in New York. I worked in New York. I mean, I spent many, many, many years there. And what happened was that I've had my law practice now for eight years, mm -hmm. I think, approximately. Sure. And I realized one morning that nobody cares where I am. Yeah, that's a good point. Everyone talks to me through Zoom, yeah. through Skype, on the phone, sure. social media. And when I have to meet with clients, my clients are around the world. They always yeah. have. So I go, I travel an enormous amount for work. But day to day, I was going to my office every day. And I thought, you know, I come to my office and I sit at my computer. Why am I even here? Mm -hmm. And I had been coming down to Miami my whole life for vacation and for Art Basel and for, you know, one-off events. Yeah. Last winter, I had to come for a bunch of events, including the, the North American Bitcoin conference. Mm -hmm. And I looked around and it was the first time that I was really in downtown Miami, because usually when you come down here, the only place that you go to as a tourist is Miami Beach. Sure. Miami Beach, you know, it's 72 hours of a lot of fun. And then you're yeah. like, I'm ready to go home. Sure. The first time I really spent a lot of time in real Miami in the city and I was blown away. I thought, my goodness, this is a real city. The city's incredible. There's so yeah. Much here. And what is real Miami? Is that like downtown Miami? Is that Brickell? So I live in Brickell now. Okay. Yeah. And so basically I realized, I took a look around and I thought, okay, wait a second. This city is beautiful. Beautiful. It's booming. Mm -hmm. The weather is amazing. Um, Brickell has so much going on. There's so many businesses here. It's the heart of, you know, the gateway to Latin America. The cost of living compared to New York is yeah. nothing. And there's no state income tax. 
Mm -hmm. oh, wait a second. Okay, hold on. What, what am I? What am I missing here? And then I thought, you know what? Let me just be an early adopter. I'm going. Sure. So I packed up and I moved here. And originally, I was renting an apartment here and keeping a place in New York. Sure. I thought I'll just go back and forth mm -hmm. and you know feel it out. And then I realized that I come to New York about two times a month, and I'm mm -hmm. there for a few days. And it's cheaper for me to stay in hotels than it is to live in an apartment there. Yeah. So I keep my office in New York. I'm there. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of New York clients. I, I have a New York license as an sure. attorney. Um, I believe that New York is still New York City, obviously. Yeah. But Miami, I have to tell you, I live in the heart of Brickell. I live mm -hmm. in the most gorgeous building in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there's a mall right next to me with, you know, Central sure. Avenue and restaurants and mm -hmm. all that. And the thing is that the energy here is insane because there are so many projects that are going on here. There's so much happening. That's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's on the verge of, of something, something really mm -hmm. huge. And yeah. that's what I'm very excited about that. I feel that Silicon Valley is very played out. Now that you have all of these IPOs, people are going to get so priced out of there. Yes. New York. I don't understand how, you know, founders entrepreneurs it's a horrible place to do yeah right it's a it is place. i mean i think the bar to even get financing is so much and i mean in the west coast if you are just part of a you know a rock star team or you're you know you you have a phd and you have a really strong team people will make those bets um as opposed to in New York, you know, people want to see all your financial statements and they want to see, you know, they want to see your data room and they want to see all the, you know, that information as opposed to taking a big bet. And I, and I will say sometimes you lose out on a lot of deals because you just take too long to do the due diligence. Um, and maybe, I don't know, do you have any examples of kind of like, like a deal that you're doing for somebody? And maybe we can take a step back. Maybe we can talk about what areas of law you focus on. Um, and then from there, you can talk about like maybe due diligence and maybe how you lost a deal because sure. it took so long. I'm not going to talk about any deals specifically. Sure. No, no problem. Yeah. No specific examples, <laughs> but I'll tell you, I'll give you some background on myself and then I'll, yeah. I'll tell you a little bit about, you know, my thoughts on the industry mm -hmm. and yeah. Miami and the like. So, um, so I went to NYU. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I studied there. I then spent a year living in Moscow, Russia. I speak Russian fluently, even though I wasn't, I wasn't born and raised there. I worked for a Russian law firm that was doing uh, mainly tax and corporate law for Western companies that wanted to do business in Russia. So it was really, really interesting to kind of see everything from the flip side. I went to law school. I went to Cardozo School of Law as part of Yeshiva University in New York. Uh, while I was there, I was very, very interested in two areas. One was intellectual property mm -hmm. and entertainment law. Uh, so I took a lot of IP courses. I was a research uh, research assistant to David Nimmer, who wrote the seminal book, Nimmer on Copyright, which anyone who's a lawyer would be very familiar with. Sure. Um, I went and I did a fellowship at the University of Oxford in the program in comparative media law and policy, where I was studying international internet law. And then I also took a lot of tax law courses. And the funny thing is that tax law and, and IP seem like two worlds away from one another. But sure. once you take tax law, taking tax law for me was like taking the red pill in the yeah. matrix. It opened up my eyes to everything, to really realizing how much tax drives every type of business decision. 
and how incredibly important it is and what a foundational uh, aspect of the law it is. So I'm, so I'm really, really happy that, that I studied these two, these two areas. I then was working in firms, but I had the, the fortune, the good or the bad fortune of going to law school right when the economy crashed. Sure. So I had an interview at UBS for their legal department. And I remember it was my third interview. I'd gone through all the rounds. It looked like, you know, it's, they, they put me up in a hotel room for the night. They yeah. took me to dinner. It was the whole thing. And when I finally sat down, uh, there was a big TV over the head of the woman who was interviewing me. And it was talking about, you know, people throwing themselves out of windows on Wall Street. Oh, wow. And, and they, they played that during the interview or was that just on no, playing the news? I mean, my, my memory might be foggy right now. <laughs> I was talking about a decade ago, but I remember seeing this on TV yeah. the morning that I had the interview. It was in my Got it. TV. Okay. So it wasn't during the interview. It was I like was you saw it on the TV before you uh, went to the interview, right? I have this feeling like I think that she had a TV on in her office. Okay. Interesting. But it's all blurry, right? <laughs> the point is, long story short, I remember it was a very very strange experience to go so did you get the job or did you <laughs> no i did not okay so you interviewed and then you just kind of remember that as kind of a memory of just I foreshadowing know. of the economy right i just remembered as foreshadowing of the economy and the thing is i remember going into that interview so confident about yeah. what my life was going to look like sure and coming out of it all of a sudden you know eyes like wide open mm -hmm. realizing that things are not going to go the way that i thought that they were going yeah to sure so uh, so when I left law school, I worked for a couple of law firms. I worked for a small firm where we were doing uh, M&A work, but we were doing due diligence on software companies. Mm -hmm. So I was doing a lot of cross-border tech staff and then yeah. I also worked in a law firm. But I ended up opening up my own law practice pretty early on. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, you know, you take you take every client that you can get and you start out very small and then you start to grow more and more and more. And I was extremely fortunate that in the course of my career, it seemed to go okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> over, so over the course of the decade, my, my client base grew tremendously and my specialty really was in working with tech and media companies, um, particularly international ones and bringing them sure. to States. So I've served as an outside general counsel to a lot of companies over the years. And as an outside general counsel, what does that mean? Traditionally, I will take a company, I will set it up, I'll be able to advise on the structuring of the company, right? Talk about should you be, I don't know, C Corp, a limited liability yeah. company, an S Corp, etc. set up in Delaware, New York, Florida. Um, I would go ahead and do all the, co the corporate governance. Sure. I would take care of trademark and copyright matters. So all the IP issues. I did a lot of software licensing agreements, reseller agreements, terms of service agreements, end user license agreements, uh, contracts with vendors and the like, and um, you know, different, different deals um, and basic just structuring and just, just guiding these companies as they grew yeah. over time and also as they grew through investment rounds as well. So some sure. of them were companies that weren't seeking investment and some of them were companies that were. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were for, from Eastern Europe because, yeah. of, because of my language abilities. Although I've represented companies from all over, American companies as well, sure. companies from China, France, you name it. And a lot of top management would come to me and also ask me if I could do 
business immigration because they would need visas. So even though that wasn't something that I had particularly studied or been interested in in law school, I started doing it because it was a service that my clients really wanted. Yeah. So let me ask you this, right? So one thing that I've been able to do is just kind of watch a video on YouTube or do some research and kind of learn something new, right? I, I'm working through the process of like producing this podcast, um, but I just like read, you know, stuff online. So do you think that's helpful for you to kind of expand your skill sets? Because I mean, you can do you know, you can do so many different things, you know, how did you kind of learn like these different skill sets? Is it just from the internet or did you read a book or did you get training or? It's a great question. So in the beginning, I, um, I studied every single way that I could. I Mm. remember I spent all my weekends in the law library. Yeah. Learning everything that I could get my hands on every book every you know document whatever it was and then the second thing that i would do is i would go to lawyers who were far more senior than i was who i had built relationships with because i had worked for them interned for them etc over time and i would hire them and i would say listen you know do you want to work with me on this project or can i hire you to consult my firm for i get an hour of your time two hours of your time to take a look at what it is that i'm doing sure and um, and I was I was fortunate that I had very very good mentors and very mm-hmm. good people that were working with me and that was something that was always very important to me because yeah. a you want to learn how to do things but b you you want to do a good job and sure I'm I'm a huge proponent that I always want to have a second pair of eyes looking at mm-hmm. everything that I do even to this day yeah so you know and then basically you end up even though I kind of have this broad range of of knowledge and skills the companies that I've represented they tend to have the same needs over and over mm-hmm. again. So there are just a lot of areas that, that I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. So the business immigration just kind of came out of it naturally. Um, I'm licensed before the U.S. tax court. I've mm-hmm. done a lot of negotiating before the IRS. Yeah. I, I've litigated before the, you know, with the IRS in federal tax court, although I'm actually not a litigator. But sure. <laughs> yeah. And, but, but mainly transactional work. So basically it's, it's companies that needed a general counsel, but weren't ready to put one on full time. Sure. I was always a very good fit for them. So okay. that grew over time and I ended up representing some, some amazing projects. So mm-hmm. you know, as years went on, the, the level of the clientele increased. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for the last five plus years, I've been the outside general counsel to an international cybersecurity firm that I've worked with for a long time. I've been general counsel to an international television station. I've worked with several very well-known media companies yeah. and a lot of tech companies. Sure. And then what happened was that about two years ago, a lot of my clients got blockchain crypto fever. Sure, yeah. And uh, all came running to me. Mm-hmm. And all started saying, you know, Kaite, Kaite, you need to hear about this thing. It's called an ICO. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I would take a look at it and I would say, guys, I'm not touching them. Yeah. See, I mean, we've done, you know, there's been some deals that we've been involved in, you know, that were hybrids, right? Mm-hmm. But we've mainly stayed closer to like just the safe agreements or straight up equity deals. And it's probably the same reason. Um, and I guess, you know, when it comes to the legal services, mm-hmm. you, know, you have so many skill sets, you're able to kind of like possibly even do like bundle packages, right? Where you do this thing and then you can probably even upsell 
Um, you know, for entrepreneurs, what should they be careful of? Like with lawyers that, um, I guess, what are some things that entrepreneurs should be careful of with like bundle packs or, you know, are there, you know, certain pros and cons to getting like a legal package where you pay them back after, um, you know, you get funding or something like that. Cause I've seen a few of those deals. Can they be predatory? Um, you know, some of those, there's been a lot of like legal firms in the, in, in Silicon Valley where they don't take any money, but they're like, Hey, pay me back. Um, after you get some funding, but if you don't get funding, is it like a subprime loan or, or like, you know, variable interest rate where it's like impossible to pay back or, or anything like that to be. Right. I mean, it depends. It depends on how the engagement letter is drafted. Yeah. So I think that my my first piece of you know my 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 first thought for any entrepreneur is it's all about the attorney. It's about yeah. the person, and I think that people forget that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. That you know, being through the experiences that I've been through, and moving through being a solo practitioner all the way mm -hmm. to going into a firm and and having lots and lots of attorneys working around me it's still all about the individual attorney yeah. a person sure. now. And so you can become very enamored by the idea that you're working with a firm that has, you know, a marquee name mm -hmm. as opposed to a small firm. Yeah. But what you really need to care about is whether or not you trust the person who's advising you, whether mm -hmm. you have good rapport with that person. Sure. Right. And whether that person is accessible and, and whether you feel comfortable, I think that that's the most important thing before you get into fees, before you get into anything yeah. else, is this somebody I can build a relationship with? Mm -hmm. And that somebody, you know, it can be a different person depending on who the entrepreneur is and what your tastes are and what your needs are, but mm -hmm. that's where you should start. With regard to fee packages, I know that there are a lot of big firms that are able to do the deferred fee arrangement. Yeah. And look, for entrepreneurs, I, I understand it. I get mm. why they would want that because who would want to pay money up front if you don't yeah, have to? Sure. It makes perfect sense. Um, it does mean that usually on the back end, the fees are frequently much higher than mm -hmm. they would be otherwise. Yeah. And so you don't think about it when it's, when it's monopoly money, right? When it's mm -hmm. all abstract, but at a later point in time, you might take a look and feel quite differently about what it is that you've been billed for and yeah. what you are sure responsibilities are to that firm and i think that that becomes the question that founders need to ask themselves and again that's a case-by-case -case scenario because i do understand why a lot of founders and entrepreneurs who don't have funding up front would still feel more comfortable with yeah. that arrangement i also think that more seasoned and experienced founders might feel very differently oh yeah of course and um, yeah, I, I think I think that they normally feel quite differently because they've been through that experience before, and they probably have a little bit more, I would say, confidence in themselves in in the idea that you know they're going to be able to to pay those legal fees, and also experience in terms of knowing exactly what it is that they need and want from the lawyers that they're working with. Sure. So you know, I can't say that any one type of package or any one type of firm is mm -hmm. is right for a client. Yeah. I think that that's the case. There's so many different types of deals, yeah, different types of opportunities. It's not one size fits all. Mm -hmm. But um, the number one thing is, do you like the person that you're working with? Yeah, and that's an important point. I mean, I think a few things can key off of that, right? I mean, your reputation is everything. Um, you know, I believe in karma, right? So, I mean, just try to be good to people and try not to screw people over. 
Um, and I think that's essentially your brand, right? I mean, especially with you being uh, a solo practitioner, you know, having your own practice, um, you know, the way you treat people, especially in the crypto space, it's a small community. Um, so I guess, you know, another great question I think is, you know, tell me about your marketing strategy. You know, you're able to acquire so many customers, build such a great business in the traditional corporate world, but now, now you've gotten into blockchain. Um, you know, how has your marketing strategy worked to grow before blockchain and how has it changed? Have you had to change anything? Um, look, you got me hooked from, you know, the, the talks that you give, uh, the videos you have, but what else do you do? Um, you know, to kind of acquire customers, do you do Facebook ads or do you do anything else or, you know, um, well, that'd be kind entire, of helpful. My entire practice from mm -hmm. the day that I hung out my shingle. Yeah. Entirely referral based. Okay. I, I actually used to not promote myself and the types yeah. of projects that I did for many years. Sure. I don't know if it's, uh, I get a little bit embarrassed by it. So it's funny because you see me everywhere, right? I'm yeah. constantly posting things. I'm constantly sure. on media. I'm constantly announcing that I have another speaking engagement. Uh -huh. That's something that I only started doing in the last couple of years. Sure. When I started to realize that a lot of people just aren't familiar with what it is that I do and who yeah. I am. And maybe it's time for me to just show that. But generally speaking, traditionally, it was all referral based. And to me, relationships are the most important thing because yeah. one experience that I've had is that I've had clients who disappeared for whatever reason, maybe their business did not pan out. Sure. Maybe they decided to go with another firm for any million reasons. Mm -hmm. And I've always said to them, you know what, the door is always open if you want to come back. And here's yeah. the funny thing, a lot of them come back. Sure. And they bring, and they bring their, their friends yeah. along too. <laughs> Really? So that's yeah. been something that, you know, I try to, to keep to heart. Um, I'm very proactive about trying to maintain mm -hmm. personal relationships, trying to help people in any way that I can, trying to introduce my contacts to one another yeah. and, and provide that kind of added, added mm -hmm. benefit of service. In terms of in the crypto space, I, the big thing about the crypto space is just because it's become very trendy, there's so many events. There's so sure. many opportunities to speak to to you know be part of something mm -hmm. uh, to be on a podcast sure. and the like where in other other industries mm -hmm. um that exists as well but it's not as it's not as you know, there's just not as much of it going on as there mm -hmm. is with this. so i have actually found that doing marketing and business development in this industry has been mm -hmm. quite easy because sure. the opportunities available yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, right, I mean, just doing a podcast, I mean, adding a comment on Telegram, right? I mean, the, all of those are ways to just get engagement. And those are essentially, I mean, I wouldn't say they're ads, but they're ways to just build, um, build awareness for what you're doing. Um, and I think some people, they just have different phases in their life. And I, you know, that's one thing I'd be curious to know too. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, Hey, you know, it's going to help my business. I need to evolve my business strategy and speak out more. But I know for me, my, you know, one, one goal that I wanted to do this year was actually improve um, my personal brand a little bit. So I thought the podcast would help and it inadvertently is also good for our fund. You know, we, you know, I also do kind of a newsletter a couple times a week. Um, but you know, it's, it's kind of also for myself. And I think if you do things because you love what you do and 
Um, you just love talking to interesting people. It's not even like you're working to like market or like promote. It's just kind of like, you're just contributing to a great community, a great ecosystem. Um, and you're just sharing, sharing something interesting and, and hopefully, um, educating somebody. And I think yeah. if you do it that way, then it's just, it's just fun. Right. I agree a hundred percent. I have to tell you one thing that people kind of always look at me funny mm -hmm. on this and, and I swear this is true. I have no ambition. Yeah. People always ask me, you know, what's your goal? What do you want to do in five sure. years? What do you want to do? <laughs> I don't five think years is such like a, what's like the generation after millennials, the baby boomer. I feel like that's like when you work, when you're like 60 years old and you've worked at like GE for 20 years, those are like the people that plan like your five year goals and your 10 year goals. I feel like yourself and myself, we're like, Hey, what are we going to do in the next eight months? And I hope, uh, you know, Bitcoin goes up a little bit. I hope it doesn't still stay the same. Um, and you know, and that's the thing, even in the crypto world, I feel like the news changes in like two weeks. You know, if you, if you put together a deck, like three weeks in advance, by the time you present, it's like completely stale. I, I don't know if you agree with me there. The thing that makes this industry so incredibly fun. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that, you know, as I was saying before, so I, I started out just representing all kinds of tech companies. Yeah. I got very, very heavily invested into this industry. Um, honestly, because first of all, because of the energy of the people. Sure. And I'm an extroverted person. So yeah. That you know, there's all these people, all these opportunities, events, telegram groups. Yeah. That for me is always very exciting. But also because of the fact that it's an industry that's constantly in flux mm -hmm. and from a regulatory perspective is a complete and total mess. Yeah. So much fun for a lawyer. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so yeah. many, there's so many interesting questions mm -hmm. to ask and, you know, new things to answer every single day in the news. There's something else going on. Yeah. There's so much focus that goes on, obviously, with respect to securities laws. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you saw, but even just, just today, I mean, I was just reading just, just before we started recording. So um, I don't even know all the details, but the SEC just came out with its first no action letter. Mm -hmm. The SEC also came out with a discussion of, of you know, what, a, what an investment contract would look like with respect to this industry okay and so that's something new that's happening mm -hmm. every single day and that's on yeah. the security side I so for the for the audience can you just give a quick summary of those two things that you just uh heard today um so the no action so um, i can't like i said i was actually oh. about to start reading <laughs> when i came online with you yeah so i'm a little bit um nervous to to say anything and make it okay but the no no worries <laughs> the SEC did just come out with its first no action letter. It's the okay. first one that I believe we've actually seen the SEC accept an offer as being a true utility offering. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so that's really interesting. And then it also mm -hmm. came up with guidelines with respect to what would constitute an investment contract. So sure. it's the first time that the SEC has really come out and taken mm -hmm. any kind of a position. Yeah. Back to, to the securities versus utility debate since, you know, mm -hmm men came out with with commentary quite some time ago so that's been really exciting um but i try to take a look at other areas of law as well so i'm very interested first of all in intellectual property sure um, copyright law and how it pertains to digital assets to me mm -hmm. is really really interesting yeah 
you know, you have a lot of things going on, not just within the U.S., but also on the international level. So when you take a look at privacy issues, mm-hmm. uh, censorship, GDPR, that's really interesting to me. Yeah. Taxation. I think that, you know, we haven't had the opportunity yet to really see how the IRS is going to be pursuing a lot of these, a lot of these deals and a lot of sure. these deals. And I think that that's going to be something very interesting to, to mm-hmm. see because the IRS has a lot more muscle power than the SEC does. Yeah. So I'm very, very curious as to how that's all going to play out. Mm-hmm. Right? And I mean, it just, it just goes on and on and on. There's so many legal questions. There's so many regulatory sure. issues. And to me, it's fascinating mm-hmm. because I get to surround myself with clients who are who are visionary thinkers right? mm-hmm. who love to think outside the box yeah. who are trying to envision a world that you know they want to change the world they want to sure. do things they want to do big things and for me i just get to be there alongside them and hopefully help them and try to guide them and try to you know create create pathways for them to do the things that they want to do yeah that's really exciting to me and that's that's what i love the most about this industry is sure being you know where is it going to go oh yeah and i don't know if you've done any you know fund administration work on the tax side but i mean i've talked to some funds that have an auditor they have a fund administrator and nobody knows how to handle it um because there's you know especially if you have like a bunch of different coins at different holdings the price changes right your realized your unrealized gains plus like the change in price right from your tax you know your cost basis um that's really hard to manage (laughs) especially when you're dealing with digital coins you know so some of the you know the fund administrators they look to like the fund to like figure it out um so there's been a few funds that have just kind of come up with their own way and um it's almost like they're teaching the the fund administrator and the auditor um so that's kind of interesting is that so many people in the industry are just making the rules up as they go yeah which is understandable because what else are you supposed to do? Oh, yeah. The IRS has not mm-hmm. come out and, and said anything. Yeah. And do you think that's why, you know, because I've been reading about this too. I mean, you know, these law, these two things that came out tonight, I think, um, you know, I've seen a few articles that kind of were leading up to this. Mm-hmm. And I guess why do you think, um, you know, the regulators are kind of starting to work with us? Do you, do you think that they just think it's, starting to become much more inevitable. There's much more market share. It's just becoming much more legitimate. It's, it's behaving better. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, mm-hmm. I do. I think that the industry, listen, I mean, the change in what we've seen in the last year. Oh yeah, huge. It's remarkable. Yeah. It's not yeah. huge. I mean, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Yeah. It's completely different people. It's a completely different attitude. Mm-hmm. I spoke at the Harvard Club two weeks ago. Yeah on a panel you know about uh, security tokens sure right a year ago i remember going to conferences with with strippers and lamborghinis oh my god <laughs> i mean yeah she has really has. Fully transformed yeah. and because of that the fact that it's grown up the fact that it's matured the fact that you have a lot of you know more kind of serious players in the game sure surprised me that regulators would want to actually try to be a little bit more helpful yeah i still think it's surprising that the fcc came out with these today to be mm-hmm. honest with you i think that people were hoping that this would happen yeah. actually i don't think anybody sure. when when it would occur or or mm-hmm. what would be the catalyst for it um but yes i mean the, the industry is maturing so i think the idea that you're going to see regulators actually coming mm-hmm. in and 
and trying to to have a hand in this is not is not surprising but from the tax perspective we haven't gotten to that yet because the irs yeah. has explicitly said you know since their 2000 in 2014 the irs came out and said we're going to tax digital currencies like property right they came sure. out mm -hmm. their little their little notice and there are a lot of questions that come along with that mm -hmm. um, then they've explicitly said that they're waiting for the treasury to make moves and other than that they, okay. don't, they don't really want to the issue becomes that from a tax perspective, one of the things that you pointed out, you're absolutely on point. The question becomes, you know, what is fair market value? And also what, you know, when do you, when do you do valuations for these coins? Sure. Especially when you're going back and forth between them all the time, right? So yeah, because I think there's a couple ways to do it too. This is just from my knowledge. You can do it like every three days or like every like intraday or at the end of day, right? Or, or I could be completely wrong. Um, but that's just there are, there are different there are different ways to do the accounting. Yeah. There's nothing that's been accepted as the standard of yeah. done, and it makes a huge huge difference. And this mm -hmm. is a problem, right? So this yeah, and I think you probably need to be consistent too, right? If you did you know one week, if you did like three days and total everything up, you probably have to do the whole year like that, or else it just throws everything off. And I think and, that, uh, I think that it's a tremendous, I, I think that one would subject themselves to, to quite an audit if, if you don't stick to at least, to at least one, one yeah. of accounting. I mean, I've seen, you know, look, the IRS has with respect to tax law, there are other areas of tax where you can have different methods for accounting. Mm -hmm. And as long as you stick to one, and as long as you have good uh, reason for why you stuck to that particular method, sure, the IRS will accept it. It's uh, okay. transfer pricing rules, right? Mm -hmm. So with transfer pricing, transfer pricing, there are different different methods that you can use to explain why you came up with the valuation that you came up with. Okay. So the idea that it could be possible in the world of cryptocurrency to have several valuation methods and that the IRS would accept any of them as long as they were consistent and backed up, I think that there's a possibility for that. I don't have the answer for it. And I'm, yeah. also, I'm not a CPA. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but there, you know, there, there, that could exist. Yeah. Sure. But you but would, in that scenario, you would also partner with the CPA as well, right? Just to make sure that, or do you just point them to the C, uh, CPA? So usually with respect to, to tax matters, yeah. um, I'm a very good issue spotter. I know, mm -hmm. I know enough about tax to know exactly what I don't know, but to be sure. honest, you know what, let's take a look at that. Let's, yeah let's stop and look at it and i i have enormous respect for for tax practitioners mm -hmm. um, so a lot of times yes i do work with cpas, mm -hmm. CPAs many many times sure to to take a look at things and you know taxation i mean you have to remember that we're we're talking about everything from sales tax mm -hmm. which might be a huge huge issue that's been completely overlooked sure to a lot of offerings, right? Because mm -hmm. software can be subject to sales tax in various state jurisdictions. Yeah. Um, we're talking about income tax. We're talking about corporate tax. We're talking about trust in estates, mm -hmm. right? And we're also talking sure. about other things. I mean, I have to tell you a lot of things that to me are very funny is um, there's so much discussion right now about security token offerings, right? Yeah. Talking about STOs and people talk again a lot about about the legal structuring from a securities mm -hmm. perspective. But yeah, sure. The tax structuring, people need to think about these things as well. Yeah. For example, a lot of people are looking into, let's say doing, I don't know, a real estate STO in the United States that would be marketed to foreign investors. Sure. Well, you have to ask yourself, do you understand how a real estate offering, depending on the structure, would be taxed 
on an estate level, you know, in terms of sales, et cetera, to those foreigners? And have you taken that into consideration in the overall structuring mm -hmm. to make sure that it's tax favorable to those foreign investors so that it is a good investment? Sure. Right? If you structure something poorly, you can turn a good investment into a bad investment yeah. very quickly. So yeah, it's totally. Issues. It's also issues like, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of, a lot of people who are, who are inexperienced coming up with ideas of, ah, you know, I'm just going to take my business offshore. We're going to do, we're going to do an ICO, but we're going to do it offshore. So we're not going to have sure. Yeah. And, and what are some of the popular, are they still Malta? I feel like Switzerland's too expensive. Um, there are lots of popular offshore yeah. zones, but the point is, do you understand what the benefits are of going offshore yeah. when you're a U.S. tax resident with a U.S. company? Mm-hmm. Who are you benefiting exactly? Sure. So the thing is that when you have, let's say, for example, a hedge fund, let's say it's a crypto hedge fund or a traditional hedge fund, right? You have a traditional master feeder structure. Yeah. And the traditional structure is usually that there's some sort of, you know, management company here in the States. You mm -hmm. have something in, let's say, Cayman, etc. Yeah. The reason for that. The reason for that is to go ahead and shield your foreign investors from U.S. tax reporting requirements. Mm -hmm. Does it minimize taxation for anyone? No. Yeah. Does it save the, the U.S. tax residents from certain obligations and tax payments? No. Does it mean that your offering is not a security? No. There are very specific reasons as to why those things are structured in the way that they are. And sure. yes, they do provide some benefit to foreign investors. Yeah. So if you're looking at sourcing foreign investment, there can be opportunities whereby either the investors will demand it because it's just something that they want. Yeah because they want to have some sort of, you know, modicum of privacy or, mm -hmm. or whatnot. Um, and there can be other benefits from that perspective, but it's not usually something that's particularly tax favorable here. Yeah. It's not, and we've used that before. I mean, the master feeder for us has been helpful for international investments, but yeah, to your point, there isn't anything else really that's- There's nothing, uh, there's nothing else. If people don't yeah. understand that there's things called CFC rules and PFIC, mm -hmm. right? CFC controlled foreign corporations, so the thing is that if I set up or if you set up, you mm -hmm. know, an entity in BBI or, yeah. or whatnot, mm -hmm. unless you, you think, okay, I'm going to be so smart. I'm going to be so slick. I will have all of the income of that company go into that company. Sure. I'll, I'll sit there and I just won't repatriate it back to the United States. <laughs> you know, I'll take a loan out against it. And yeah. people don't understand that there are specific rules in, mm -hmm. in the tax code to make sure that people don't do that. Sure. Because penalized for it but no. then how does how does like google facebook apple because they you know and there, there's a really interesting articles about like and it actually has diagrams of like how the money flows in and out um how do they get away with it you know is it just because they're so big and they can just pay everybody off or you it's know what? look they're they're doing to my knowledge yeah right? they're developing completely legitimate structures even mm -hmm. if the structures that upset people yeah there are jurisdictions such as Ireland that have created extremely favorable opportunities. Yes. The point is that when you're talking about a massive company like mm -hmm. Google, Google can afford to hire the best tax professionals and sure. set up all over the world and set up extremely complicated structures yeah. to gain favorable benefits. Sure. The average founder, entrepreneur, mm -hmm 
um, you know, types of companies that we're talking about, even if these are successful companies that are valuations of, I don't know, 10 million, 15 million, $20 million, Mm -hmm. they're not, they're not at Google levels. Yeah. So there are all kinds of things that one can put into place that can create really favorable tax uh, structures, right? The whole point of hiring a CPA, a tax attorney, um, are to make sure that you're coming up with tax favorable structures in in a completely legitimate and legal way. My point is not that there aren't ways to go ahead and create favorable structures. My point is simply that a lot of people who who are less experienced have this idea in their minds that, you know, I, I'll just, I'll just set up offshore. <laughs> be solved. Not yeah. realizing that, you know, the IRS is onto this. So it's yeah. not that easy. Um, but by the way, I have to tell you something else. You know, what is the greatest offshore jurisdiction in the world? Who's that? The United States of America. Okay. If you're not a U.S. tax resident, if you're a foreigner, there's yeah. no other place than to put your money into a Delaware entity. You can set up a Delaware entity in a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. You can set yourself a bank account. Yeah. You can put your money here. Mm-hmm. Um, so and- international people can do the same thing? So like if I'm in China, I could set up a Delaware Corp? Yeah. I mean, listen, you now are having a lot of changes, a lot of things yeah. over the years. So the Panama Papers, I don't know if you're familiar with the Panama Papers. I'm not, no. The Panama Papers were, it was this major, massive international incident where mm-hmm. A lot of foreign banks went ahead and started revealing who had ownership, who 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 had money stored away. In oh wow, banks. interesting! <laughs> and when those offshore bank accounts leaked, that kind of changed banking. Sure. Um, it used to be that I had clients who we would set up entities, you know, offshore in different jurisdictions mm-hmm. for various reasons, and then go ahead and open up a bank account for them. Sure. And then it became almost impossible because what we found is that if I would have a client who, let's say, had interests in the EU and in the United States and in Eastern Europe and different places, American banks wouldn't really want to touch the foreign stuff without having certain disclosures. Yeah. The foreign banks, they don't want to have anything to do with anything that touches the United States. Sure. Because of the fact that the United States forces them to disclose a lot of information. Right. Okay. Swiss banks once upon a time were able to do everything discreetly and now they don't. Yeah. The United States forced their arm, right? Okay. So the Panama Papers changed a lot. You then had some other issues. Um, there was a huge set of articles that had come out. I think it was New York Magazine. Mm-hmm. Talked a lot about how so much of the real estate in New York City is purchased through entities. Sure. Right? And through these entities, if these entities are then owned by a foreign entity, you can never find out who the ultimate beneficial mm-hmm. owner is. Now, the yeah. fact of the matter is people do this for all kinds of legitimate reasons. Have you read that book, uh, Billion Dollar Whale? No. It's an amazing book. Um, it's a true story. It's about this guy. And you know what? I don't remember all the specific details, but it's an amazing story. Um, it's about this guy that came from kind of like an upper middle class family in China. And he ended up somehow going to a nice school in London. Mm-hmm. Um, that school in London, his, his colleagues were very well off, very politically connected. He somehow 
built his network and somehow positioned himself to make people believe that he came from like old money in China. And uh, somehow um, he had some friends that were like really good at setting up shell companies and uh, different entities all over. Like, I think, I don't think it's a Caribbean. I think it's Seychelles. Mm -hmm. um, and there's like some sophisticated things that he did, but somehow he swindled um, billions of dollars, I th billions from uh, like huge institutions in the Middle East and also in Malaysia. And then he started this sovereign wealth fund. Um, and what he did is he was, he was pretty much raising a bunch of money, spending it, and then, you know, pretty much convincing people that the money that he was showing off, um, he used that money that he showed off to raise more money. But he was famous because he funded, um, uh, what's that Leonardo DiCaprio movie, the, the stock movie, uh, uh, Wolf of Wall Street. So he funded Wolf of Wall Street, um, and he was like really famous in Hollywood. You know, he would like just throw the most yeah, extravagant parties. Sorry, I mean, he sounds he sounds like an interesting guy. Yeah, there are bad actors with yeah. the shell companies and the like. There are a lot of clients, people, individuals out there. Yeah, who run things through entities for completely legitimate purposes. It's yeah, all you know, nefarious. Believe me, they, sure. And for me, it was just an interesting learning experience because I didn't I didn't even know about like Seychelles and like how those shell company work how shell companies worked. So. For me, it was just kind of educational to just learn that that could even be done. Um, oh yeah, I mean, there, there are yeah. so many different structures in the world, but the question is, I think that because of stories like that, people have this idea that either it's something nefarious and should be avoided, or yeah. it's something that's going to solve all your problems because you can sure. just hide it offshore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the truth is, but the truth is that there, there's a lot that goes behind uh, those types of ideas and discussions. Mm -hmm. so, the point that I simply wanted to make is that there are a lot of foreign investors who are investing into the United States, whether it be real estate or something else, who yeah. go through different various structures for many, many reasons, whether sure. it's tax-based, estate-based, you know, whatever it is. And um, so it's, you know, a lot of things have changed over time. Mm -hmm. Banks in the United States have become much more difficult to work with. It's much yeah. harder. I've been, you know, helping clients to open up bank accounts for years sure. and some you know it, it's become it's become much harder uh there are a lot of new laws that are coming into place with respect mm -hmm. to minority investors okay uh, from countries like china who are investing into companies in the u.s that have access to sensitive technology sure those laws really used to apply to majority investors so the investor landscape is changing, especially with respect to foreign investment into the United States. Okay. Um, it's becoming, you know, it's becoming more difficult. And there are good reasons for that. And there are very bad reasons for that, frankly. Sure. And, you know, it's, there's arguments for both. Yeah. But it's changing. It's changing quite a bit. But ultimately, my, my original point was simply that the United States for foreigners, mm -hmm. a wonderful place to park. Yeah. I mean, it's, you probably were, you know, aware of this too. I mean, there's a lot of co-ops and buildings in New York city and the open houses. A lot of times you see their international investors. Um, so totally believe it. And, you know, I think with the, with blockchain technology, even tokenizing that, um, you know, the, the ability to have fractional ownership, I think that's very transformative too.
Uh, so I think it's huge. I think to me yeah. in the world of the STO market, I believe mm -hmm. that real estate is the lowest hanging fruit. So that's oh, yeah. that I'm committing to working on quite a bit in 2019 yeah. is with respect to, to real estate STOs. Sure. Um, and I think even you can even be innovative when it's not really, because I think what's super simple, not super simple, but what, what I would naturally think of and most New Yorkers would think of is, hey, you have a co-op, there's already shares. Might as well just put those shares um digitize those shares and kind of divide them but i think it's much more interesting when you can tokenize many other things related to real estate or maybe you know a certain area of real estate like in a in a geographic region and maybe that's broken up into shares where there wasn't even a structure of co-ops or shares at all and you're kind of generating that um you know digitally i think that's kind of interesting Look, I think it's going to be really, really, really fun mm -hmm. to to watch and to see, right? Yeah. Just in the last few months, we've seen some huge deals. I mean, Investing sure. Capital Partners has tokenized two hundred sixty million dollars worth of real estate assets. Sure. And and that's that's been the biggest deal that's ever been done so far. And yeah. Players who are involved in that, I'm of course familiar with with a lot of them. And uh, there have been some other projects as well that have been really interesting. Mm -hmm. The St. Regis in Aspen, Colorado, that I think tokenized $19 million worth. Oh, wow. Of its assets. And they moved over to the Securitized platform mm -hmm. not long ago. Yep. So that's another interesting one. And I think we're going to see a lot more of those. So I'm very, very interested in watching the security token market, yeah. whether it's attractive for foreign investors. One thing I'm interested in, to be honest with you, is because I'm familiar with EB-5s mm -hmm. and regional centers, as I'm wondering, you know, who wants to be the first guinea pig to do a regional center that becomes tokenized? And if sure. anyone is out there who wants to do it, I so want to be part of that project. <laughs> Every area of law that I'm familiar with combined, so I'd be really yeah. interested. Um, but I'm I'm very, very interested in, in that area. I'm also yeah. interested, to be honest with you, in blockchain, on the total flip side. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of focus on, on STOs and, sure. and on the possibilities for that. And obviously it's not just real estate, right? I mean, yeah. but all kinds of, of different mm -hmm. industries and areas, but also blockchain technology, you know, what's going on on the uh, supply chain side, mm -hmm. on the enterprise side, that to me is really interesting yeah. and really exciting as well. I'm, I'm on the board of directors of a company called Level Blocks. Okay. Level Blocks uh, has created technology. We do seed to sale tracking for the cannabis industry. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. And so that's amazing. I mean, it's just a yeah. tech company. They're not really part of the, the cannabis part. Sure. The tech that they could do could be used for pretty much anything. But mm -hmm. what they had come to realize was that in the cannabis industry, if you're really going to legitimize cannabis, yeah. you're going to have a medical marijuana industry. If doctors are actually prescribing certain strains, mm -hmm. they need to know that you know what it is that they're prescribing is really sure. prescribing. Yeah. And there are very stringent laws that are coming up in various states with respect to you know how you track seed to sale. And blockchain technology is something that can actually do that. Yeah. And can make that happen in a very, very efficient and easy manner. Yeah. So Level Blocks has now been doing quite a bit in the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, they're working with one of the, the largest medical medical cannabis companies here. Okay. And they've been talking a lot with, with Florida government as well about maybe doing some sort of a test pilot program for cannabis and the like, and then, and then moving that into different states. So, you know, blockchain technology is interesting because for me, it's, 
it's it's like an underlying tech, right? Oh yeah, it is. Yeah, we we made a couple investments in supply chain management too. We invested in Freight, which is just a straight up supply chain management system that integrates in with several manufacturers and in distributors. And then we also invested in uh, a B2B robotics company that uses the blockchain to make sure that certain actions done by certain robots in a network um, did actually do what they were supposed to do. So we're, we're super passionate about that too. I think the underlying application is really what the tech is. Um, so totally, you know, totally in sync with you there. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I know it's late for you there. I know it's almost like nine o'clock. Um, I know, I know we were able to kind of get it a little earlier so we can, you know, tuck our little ones in or I'm not sure if your little one's going to bed soon. You, um, you can't hear mine. Mine was babbling in the background. Oh, was he? Okay. Yeah, How did you I'm keep him busy? Do you just have him watching the iPad or something? That's what I usually do. <laughs> so someone's trying to put him to bed and he keeps running out. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, maybe we'll have a play date at some point in the, in the future, you know, um, Absolutely. definitely. Um, so I always like to end with a couple interesting questions and you know what I've been doing, I've been studying like interesting interviewers. I don't know if you've ever seen like inside the actor studio. Um, <laughs> that's like, that's like a little more intense because like usually the actors or the people start crying. Um, but I always wonder like what makes somebody an interesting interviewer um so you know as i kind of iterate on this i kind of just come up with some other ideas um but maybe you can just you know what i got two of them and and you know we can see how this goes what would you tell your 15 year old self and your 25 year old self oh god um, um i think my 15 year old self i'd tell high school really doesn't matter good point I agree. You know, well, well, the fun, the fun that you had in high school, I think, were good memories. I mean, I have great memories, but yeah. the thing is, everything seems so important. Yeah. Right. The mm -hmm. clicks, the friends. It does, the friends, yeah. People, you know, wanting to be part of of whatever it is that they're. Yeah. And then you go through life, and it just doesn't. It really doesn't. Yeah, matter. all the cool people are losers, and uh, all the nerds are like the cool, you know, people now. I was a big nerd. So yeah, I was too. I was too. I was, I was, in, the, I was in the computer club. Uh, it was pretty bad. <laughs> okay, you're, you're nerdier than I. Yeah, I was probably nerdier. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. No, I was. I was a big dork. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Hey, you know, look how you turned out. Yeah, I think I did okay. Yeah, did okay. So nothing. Okay. So now, so high school, kind of like the rebellious stage. Fifteen years old, right? Um, now you're 25, right? You're done with probably college. Is there something you would have told yourself, uh, you know, you, you know, My back then? Self? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so you're doing everything right. You know, when I, was right. 20s, yeah, yeah. when I was in my twenties, the thing is that you, the older you get, the more time in life you realize you have, right? But when you're younger, you think yeah. that you have no time. Yeah. And I remember when I was in my twenties, I had committed myself to my education and my career. Yeah. And there were these moments when I remember, you know, every weekend I always spent studying, mm -hmm. always, always my, like every year after year after year. And people would go, my friends were out partying, having fun, traveling, seeing the world. And I wasn't doing any of that. I was either uh -huh. working or studying always. And there was a part of me that thought, my God, you know, you're wasting your twenties. You're, you're, yeah. you're not going to be able to go out anymore. Yeah. 
they're not going to let you in anywhere because you're going to be right and then of course you know now it's now it's many years later yeah. and, uh, and i'm very very happy that i did yeah. these things because now i'm able to go out and, and have a good time and, and feel like i earned same thing i mean i was on the ground i mean i worked full-time and then i did my phd part-time um and same thing i mean a lot of my friends were out partying and now it would have been impossible, you know, with a little one at home, there would be no time, you know, with, with podcasts and everything else, how would I be able to do a PhD, you know? Um, but so I'm glad that I got that, like those big rocks out of the way. Um, and you probably feel the same way. No, I, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I'm really proud of myself. Yeah. I'm proud of you too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I, and I think, look, I think, um, I think you feel as you, you know, you're as young as you feel, right? Even if you're 80 years old, I think you should still feel young um, because I think it's like a mentality, right? If you feel full of life, um, you know, up with like the trends, it doesn't matter how old you are. Look at like John McAfee, right? <laughs> I, mean, he's still I, mean, I, I feel very young and I also yeah. feel that I, I look very young and I always think that I look much younger than I am. Yeah. But lately Facebook started sending me all these advertisements for Botox. Interesting. Well, you know, it's, just, it's just marketing. And Facebook always knows, you know? Yeah. They know. They're watching. So. I know they are. I mean, I just live life knowing that I'm being watched and maybe that makes me less paranoid. Um, but I would say, you know, I think my conscience is still the same as like when I was like 15 years old. I just think I have more wisdom, but I still think like my personality is still, I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, I'm, I'm, must, I'm obviously much more mature. What's that? I think my personality is the same as when I was little. I don't think it changed. You, oh, you agree with me? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I think, I think, yeah. I mean, I would say like, I mean, I, I have a lot more knowledge. I have much more wisdom. Um, but You're my personality, I think is still the same. Listen, you have children. And the one thing that you realize, I think, when you have kids. Yeah. Before you have children, you always see other people and you think, oh, when I have children, I'm going to yeah. do this and I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do all these things to socially engineer my kids mm -hmm. so my kid can be exactly what I want him or her to be. Sure. Where you see those parents at a restaurant and the child is, you know, watching TV on an iPad and you think, mm -hmm. I would never do that. <laughs> and then you end up downloading an iPad because you can't enjoy your dinner. Right, of course. Yeah. But then you have children. And I know that when my son came out, I mean, he's, he's a, his own person. And yeah from the very first instant and you can yes. mold them and you can guide them and you know you can lead them in the right direction and influence them it's but you come out who you are yeah and you know what one thing i i have been observing too you know i've met a few people that are that are a little older um that i've seen kind of around at church and stuff and like you know they would tell us about like their stories of like their kids in prep school and like you know one one of the you know this one guy that i met he has a son that's grown up now, but he went to like the, the best like high end prep schools. And um, he's just at PWC. I mean, not, not, I'm not like trying to give, give that an understatement that it's like just PWC, but I know people that like went to oh, Rutgers. You huh? You snub. Yeah. But, but you know what I mean though, right? I mean, he went to such a high end school. Um, and, and I think there's other people that I think if you just work hard and you do well, and I think if you can just interview well, um, you could do anything, right? You can swindle people. You could swindle a sovereign wealth fund if you just, um, interview well or speak well. Right. Um, so I think, you know, it makes me question because I mean, you're probably thinking about this too. Like with my son, he's at the Montessori now, um, which is like a block away from my house, but 
it's like very strict, you know, it's almost like, you know, he's only two years old and they're like making him wear a uniform and, you know, following all these rules. And, you know, I think about that sometimes I'm like, you know, is he missing out on like just being a fun, a kid having fun and like imagining uh, different things and jumping off of, you know, certain things, you know, that would be considered in the system of like the Montessori, like, Oh, bad behavior when you're really just being a kid and being curious um, so I kind of think about those things too. And sometimes that curiosity makes you more innovative and like more eccentric. I don't know. I think it totally depends on who your child is. Somebody yeah. asked me today, you know, where I want my son to, to go to school. Mm -hmm. and I said, it depends on my son. Yeah. And the only thing I can say is, you know, I know for myself in terms of talking about different people's life paths and what they should do and where they should yeah. go. Right. There are obvious benefits to having, the pedigree schools and, sure. and prestige and there are lots of people who are really successful without it yeah i know that in my life i became really successful mm -hmm. when i decided to completely and totally be myself yeah and and honestly i wasn't about me thinking you know what's my personal brand yeah or, or you know sort of who should i be or what should i be it was really a a point in my life when I decided, you know what, these are the things I like. These are the things I don't like. Mm -hmm. This is the personality that I have. Yeah. And I'm going to be totally okay with it. Yeah. And I'm just going to live my life. And the funny thing is that when I stopped worrying about what other people think mm -hmm. was when I started attracting so many more wonderful people into my life. Yeah. And you know what, I think that's a huge thing that I see that is different, right? From like when you're 15, because it's to your point, right? When you're in high school, there's all these clicks. You're like, you know, wondering who you are, you're trying to figure out like, you know, what type of identity you have. Um, but when you get older, you're just kind of like, screw everybody. I, you know, I am who I am. I know I'm doing the best I can and everything. And, you know, hey, I, if I'm just a good person, you know, that will attract positive energy, right? Um, so I, I think, I think yeah. I believe the same things you do. It's, so. Listen, it's, it's really important. And I think also, you know, I, when you're a female, especially, mm -hmm. and a professional, yeah. I didn't grow up with a lot of role models yeah. that I could really identify with. Because either sure. you're, you know, if you want to be a professional woman, you have to be the iron lady, right? You, yeah. you, have to, you can't be a woman anymore. You have to completely, you know, become a man and become very, yeah. very serious and very important. Especially and, like in the tech ecosystem and like, you know, just other industries in general where there's just, I mean, probably in the legal space there's like more men than females right oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's more than probably yeah and then at the same time you know if you want to be i don't know if you want to end up being what's cool so so what's cool when you're 15 years old you're seeing whatever's on tv you're seeing whatever's in magazines yeah. right and you see sort of the same kind of you know types of people over and over again and you don't really have a way to kind of navigate. And then you're, you're in your high school bubble and there's the people who are designated as popular and the yeah. people who are designated as not cool. Sure. And you become very heavily influenced by all of these outside factors in terms of trying to mold yourself to be what the people around you have taught you is cool. Yeah. Right. So for me, you know, I was made fun of a lot when I was 10, 11 years old because sure. I was a big dork. Yeah. And because I was okay. a big cat, right? But the thing is, it's kind of, you know, in retrospect, I mean, 
I was smart. Deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but the point is that, you know, you get older, you get much more comfortable in your yeah. skin. And when you become comfortable in your skin is when you actually find your people. And that's what's you really know. interesting about growing up is yeah. that you leave that little high school teenage bubble and maybe you go off to college and you meet the right people yeah. in your career. But the more you start doing things in life that are aligned with where your interests truly lie, yeah. the greater the capacity you have to actually meet the right type of people. Sure. Yeah, and then it becomes, it doesn't even become work. I mean, it does because you're working hard, but you're just excited and you're super into it that you don't see it as like just busy work, right? It's just, you're doing what you love. And a lot of people are, you know, are still trying to find that, right? They have to, you know, they're, they've, they're trying to put food on the table. They're living in fear. So they're taking a corporate job, right? And they got to follow those it's rules. Hard. Life is hard. I, I mean, I, I get it. I know. Daycare is expensive, you know? Daycare is expensive. <laughs> Yeah. Well, hey, I like how this turned into like kind of like an Oprah show as well towards the end, you know, talking Absolutely. about. You did a great yeah. job. You're like, you're like Thank the you. Walters of blockchain. I don't think we even really talked about blockchain in this discussion. Well, we did. We did. I have to like justify, justify. this interview, right? <laughs> I like that though. The Barbara Walters of uh, blockchain. That's great. That's coming to call you from now on. John. Sounds good. I, I look forward to uh, the new nickname. So what I'll do is, you know, this is episode two. Uh, I finalized the theme music. So I have like really cool music. So I'll be editing this and then um, let's keep in touch. Uh, you know, the next couple of weeks, you can give me some updates on, you know, stuff that we talked about and um, look forward to connecting. You know, you're in New York, so let's definitely do coffee or something and I would love get to. an excuse to come to Miami too, right? Sure. All right. All right. I'll see you later. Bye.